0: Hi, Pastor Chad Tucker here from Doxa Church in Burlington, North Carolina. To learn more about our new ministry and to find out about how you can partner with us, visit us online at doxaburlington.com. That's D-O-X-A Burlington dot com. We hope you enjoy the message. I'll ask you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 1. We're in a wonderful section in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. For John the Apostle, the writer, John the Revelator, some refer to him, who is on the Isle of Patmos, catches a vision of the glorified risen Lord. In our last study, we considered what it would be to see the resurrected Lord. And we kind of took a walk through the Gospels and we saw how different people responded to seeing the resurrected Lord. We saw how Mary, when Mary saw Jesus, that she simply wanted to cling to Him and rejoice in her heart. We didn't look at this one, but we could have considered the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And when their eyes were open and they saw the Lord uh, there in the midst of the communion table, uh, they were amazed. They were amazed. Uh, we could go to the disciples in the upper room there after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and they had gathered there in the upper room and the Lord just appeared to them uh, in an instant and, and, and immediately announced, Peace, be still. And, and they rejoiced and were glad as they received the, the commission of, of Christ to go into all the world and, and John's Gospel to live sent knowing that they have been sent the same way that Christ uh, was sent by God. And so we also saw the Roman soldiers that when they were there, uh, uh, because the word had gotten out that uh, perhaps Jesus was going to rise from the dead, they put a uh, garrison of soldiers there, Roman soldiers outside the tomb, and they rolled a huge stone in front and sealed it with the authority of, of Rome. And... As Christ was rising from the dead, the earth shook and the seal broke and the stone rolled away and we saw that they fell down as if dead. Uh, Certainly a response that we would expect from those who would be far from Christ. The Bible doesn't say that they saw the, the risen Lord, but all the things that was there, they saw the angel and perhaps saw the risen Lord, but even if more so, what a, even a deeper picture it would be that they would fall down as if dead. But we were surprised when we got to Revelation chapter 1 verse 17, where John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet, And not worshipped and not cling to Him and not was amazed. But his response was a similar response to those Roman Roman guards. And it's interesting because John is the one who, right? He was reclining on the bosom of Jesus there at the Last Supper. John is the one who remained faithful to the end. John is the one who was there at the cross when Jesus entrusted the care of Mary to him. And so what we're looking at is we're looking at what is it that caused John to respond in this way? And if I were going to answer it just in a nutshell, in a simple, just lay it out and give you the answer... I think the difference between what took place in the Gospels with the believers there and what takes place with John on the Isle of Patmos here is there they saw the familiar form of Jesus raised from the dead. They saw the resurrected Lord. Though their eyes had to be opened in terms of the disciples, Mary recognized Jesus. She recognized the voice of Jesus. She saw Jesus in a familiar form. He was dead and now He's alive. But here, what we're going to see today is, is John doesn't just see Jesus in His resurrected form. John sees Jesus in His risen, glorified form. In fact, let me read for you this vision that he saw as we consider this topic today. And when I saw him... And when I saw him, I want to read for you this vision and you'll certainly see if you, whatever images that you have in your mind about what the Lord Jesus would look like. And the, the, the images, by the way, probably every image that you have in your mind of what Jesus looks like physically is wrong. And nowhere does, do we really get a description of what Jesus looks like, looked looked like physically. Just some indicators along the way, uh, long hair, beard, being a Jew, we can imagine the Jewish features in traits, be a Middle Eastern, we can certainly understand that He would not be white, blue eyes, most likely. Probably much, much darker than the pictures that you had in Sunday school class growing up of what Jesus is. Jesus isn't white, by the way. But even more than that... What John sees is not the familiar form of the Jesus that he walked with the three and a half years prior. John sees Jesus in His glorified form. And along with this vision with which he sees, there's a lot of symbolism. In fact, there's a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation as well. That in some ways puts you and I somewhat at a disadvantage. The reason it puts us at a disadvantage is because uh, those of the New Testament and those who would read and understand, they would immediately get the connections, they would get the symbols, they would understand the things that it would mean, and it wouldn't necessarily have to have an explanation. The vast majority of the symbols that we see in the in what we'll come across in the book of Revelation, the vast majority of them are biblically defined. It's easy to see this is that and this is that and this represents that. But some are certainly assumed and you have to drop down into the biblical world and into their culture in order for us to be able to understand it. I want you to sort of know that up front and I can give you a great example of that. Uh, You know, uh, two weeks ago I had to go to the emergency room, and when you go to uh, the emergency room, uh, there's a red cross at the top, and what does that red cross signify? Well, you and I would know that that would be where the emergency room is, right? you got the red cross, and it says uh, emergency there on the side of the hospital. You know, that's the entrance for the emergency room, but what if you didn't know that that's what the red cross stood for? I think about my students who come to America, particularly those in my citizenship class, and they come from their country around the world, and we have all kinds of symbols that they have to learn what the symbol is and what the meaning of that symbol is. In fact, uh, just uh, recently I had the privilege of teaching my citizenship class about the American flag. The American flag has how many stripes on it? Thirteen stripes. That's right, Mallory. It has thirteen stripes. And what do those thirteen stripes represent? What do they symbolize? They symbolize the thirteen colonies. That's right. And then on that flag, also, what you have is you have fifty stars, right? And no one has to. When you see the flag, every time you see the flag, you don't point out that there are. 13 stripes and 50 stars and alternating red and white stripes. What do the 50 stars represent? The 50 states. So you and I assume and you and I know the symbols that we are familiar with and we don't necessarily need someone um, telling us what all of those symbols mean every time uh, we encounter them. But when you think about... When you think about someone coming to the United States for the first time, they see the flag but are clueless about what the symbol means. The same is true with our seal for uh, the United States of America, right? It's a it's an eagle, and sometimes we'd have to explain that the, the eagle is a, a bird of prey. And if you look at the seal of the United States of America in one hand and one claw, you know what's in one claw? Arrows, Mm-hmm. And then the other claw, olive branches. And so we are ones who will fight for our freedom, but willing to extend the olive branch uh, as well uh, to those who share in our values. So these are things that, that we know and things that we've learned because we grow up here. Uh, and this is our culture and this is our context and so when it comes to the Bible, we have to have a little more explanation. We we don't always uh, naturally get all of the symbols. And if we're not careful, and as many have done through the, through the years of studying the book of Revelation, they just arbitrarily assign what those symbols are uh, and give them their own meaning. Well, it could be this, could be that, and instead of the clear meaning found in Scripture, if there is one. So John is there on the Isle of Patmos, and we've looked in the past, we know that he's there because he was banished there for the Word of God and the testimony of Christ. (laughs) Under Domitian, he is approximately late 80s, early 90s, assigned to hard labor, what we would call the chain game, perhaps breaking rocks uh, there on that island. And as he's there, he's in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So he's uh, worshiping on the Lord's day. And there on the Lord's day, he is um, uh, has this experience, which is, I wouldn't say it's necessarily an out-of-body experience, but I will say it's an in-the-Spirit experience. For he says that he was worshiping on the Lord's Day. And when he was worshiping on uh, the Lord's Day, he, he heard the voice behind him, the voice of the trumpet. Let's take a look here and read if we could. We're going to pick up in verse 10 and we'll read down through verse 17 to kind of get the whole vision in mind of what John heard and what John saw. And today we're going to consider the glorified risen Lord. And by virtue of that and his location within the lampstand, which you're going to see represent the church. We're going to consider today the the ministry that the Lord Jesus has to the local church from the time he rose from the dead, the church was established, through now, and the ministry he will have to the church until his return and the events unfold here in the book of Revelation. Let's pick up in verse 10. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. And his feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was shining like the sun at full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man." What I want to do is look at this vision that John sees of the glorified Lord and help it to the best of our ability take this heavenly vision that John saw and try to articulate in words that humans can understand and see if we can help it make sense to us today. First of all, if you would, go back to verse 10 and let's look at the the voice of uh, the Lord. The voice of the Lord. His voice was the voice as of a trumpet. You can go all the way back into Exodus in the Old Testament and there at Mount Sinai when the Lord gave the Ten Commandments. The the Bible says that that the mountain shook and the voice of God was that of of a trumpet. Oftentimes what we see throughout Scripture and more times in the book of Revelation than we can look at and survey today, that before God gives a solemn revelation or warning or, or issues the, the judgment to come, there is this loud sound or this loud voice like that of a trumpet. In fact, I can't even take you through all of them. It's in chapter 5 of Revelation, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 14, chapter 16, chapter 19. And several times in those chapters you hear this loud voice, this loud sound, and then comes the solemn revelation. And this is the first of those. And what it indicates is the powerful, sovereign, commanding voice out of heaven. And in the Old Testament, it was the voice of God that was the trumpet. And so you and I are not surprised that here in this passage, it's the voice of Christ which is the voice of God because Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And so John hears this voice, this sound of a trumpet, and he says to him, write. Now some translations say write in a book, and in the original language it's write on a scroll, but it wouldn't be the scroll made of animal skins that you would see that they would lay out and and dry and and write on that and roll up. This would be the, um, the, the, the papyrus. Uh, uh, leaves, uh, if you will, which is why some translate it as uh, uh, as a book. And he says, "Write what you see and send it to the seven churches." And he lists those churches. And you remember that last time we saw that those churches are are seven churches. They were actual churches that were planted in these seven cities, and they are arranged along a a, a mail route, if you would. And so they would take them, and they they would—they could—the mailman would deliver the mail in each of those cities, and they're listed in a a really in a semicircular order or pattern there. And we'll learn more about each of those cities as we get to the letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter two and chapter three. So John hears this voice and verse 12 says, and then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And by the way, if you just say, well, how do you know honestly that that's the Lord Jesus' voice? We find out exactly who it is after the vision is given, but you can just skip ahead to verse 20 if you'd like to. uh, or, or, uh, excuse me, um, skip down to verse uh, 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he laid his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. Only Jesus can say that. Only Jesus is the one who was dead, and John certainly knew that. He saw that. He witnessed and observed that, and now he is alive. He's alive. So this is, this is God, and notice what he says. He says, I turned to see whose voice it was who spoke to me. And the first thing he does is, is what we see in this vision is, is he sees that the, there are these lampstands that are there. So we're going to see the location uh, from which the voice came. And then we're going to notice the clothing that this one wear before we get to his physical characteristics. The location, the clothing, John notices and points out, and then the characteristics of the Lord. Notice first of all the, the locations. He says, when I turned, what did he see? I saw seven golden lampstands. Seven golden lampstands. Uh, these lampstands would be, um, uh, uh lampstands that would be common and average, except these are made out of gold. Uh, lamp stands obviously would have a place for oil to come in. They would have a wick and they would they would be a light. Now, you and I can say, well, what in the world are these lampstands? We can try to figure it out and we can come up with all of these things, you know, uh, that Jesus is the light of the world, we're to be the light of the world, and and potentially all, all of that's true. But if we just look down in verse 20 and we just let Scripture define itself, then what we see is is that the mystery of the seven stars uh, you saw in the end of the seven golden lampstand is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. We'll talk about that. The Seven lampstands are the seven churches. So I want you to notice this location that here is the glorified risen Lord and He's in the midst of these lampstands and these lampstands are the churches. Why seven? There were certainly more than seven churches but as you know from other places in Scripture, seven is the number of completion. God chose the number of seven. However you want to attach meaning and significance uh, to that, but seven is certainly the, the number of completion and it would kind of be representative of all the churches. And I think the important thing to notice is that uh, the church is, uh, is represented by these lampstands, these golden lampstands. And where is the glorified risen Christ? In the midst of the lampstands. Now, why is that so significant? I think it's so significant because from the time that the church was established until now, that is exactly where the Lord Jesus Christ is. Sure, He's seated at the right hand of the Father. From this He will come again to judge the living and the dead. But He also said him the Great Commission, Lo, I am with you always through the end of the age. He is in the midst of His church. Where the church is gathered. And remember, the church is not a building. The church is a people. Where the people of God are gathered, their God is in the midst. Where the people of God are gathered, you know based on the authority of God's word that God is there to be a part of that which he is to empower the church. In fact, Paul wrote to the church of Galatia, he says, "Um, I've been crucified with Christ, no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I don't live by, I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me. Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He is there in the midst of the lampstands. He is there in the midst of, of all these things. These were portable lampstands made of gold that would be set around a room. And at night, a little oil lamp would would be uh, set in them for light. The church then is seen as God's lampstand for which the light of life shines. The church is the light of the world. And Jesus said, God's people are assembled in churches so that they can shine forth the light. Each church a light in its own location. The lampstands are gold. And why? Because gold was the most precious, the most lovely, the most beautiful metal. The congregation of God's people are not only to be lights of the world, but they are to the heart of God the most costly, the most beautiful, the most precious, and the most valuable thing on earth. So valuable the church is to the Lord. So valuable that He was willing to purchase them with what? With his own blood, nothing but the best materials to represent. You can see it even back in Exodus chapter 25. 31-40, 31-40, to 40, and God's design for the temple and the tabernacle, there was a seven-fold lamp, you can see it in Zechariah 4-2, again, both Moses and Zechariah had seven lamps on their stands, it's a symbol of completeness, symbolic of the whole people of God, and here the whole church, the whole body of Christ... And where is Jesus Christ? He is in the midst of the lampstands empowering the church to be what it is. I don't ever want you to forget that. Matthew 18 says... Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. But may I remind you that the context of that is the church coming together, not just for worship and celebration and reading and studying of God's Word, but Matthew 18 is in the context of even dealing with sin in the church and dealing with church discipline. And so anything that relates to God's people coming together, both to worship and to purify and to discipline the believers in the church, God, the Lord Jesus specifically, specifically is there in the midst and by the way is that not what jesus says when he says apart from me you can do what nothing you and i have no ability in and of ourselves to make this church to be anything other than what it is right now and we didn't even do this If this church is going to be established and firmly planted, and if this church is going to go, it's not going to be because of our efforts alone. It's going to be because the Lord Jesus Christ is in our midst and He chooses to gather us together as a people and to draw other people to us. And as we faithfully go and share the good news of the Gospel, He goes with us and souls are saved and lives are changed. And He brings the church together because, may I remind you, He is the head of the church. He is the head of the church. And quite frankly, folks, if God doesn't do it, it will not be done. And so there he is in the midst of the lampstands. And John says in verse 13, "...among the lampstand was one like the Son of Man." Uh, This is a reference back into both the Gospels, uh, the Synoptic Gospel, which referred to Jesus as the Son of Man, but it goes all the way back to Daniel, the book of Daniel as well, where there before God comes in one like a Son of Man. Jesus is not just like the Son of Man, He is the Son of Man. John is using like in kind of a humble state, in a humble fashion. He's not saying that this is not the Son of Man, He's just using it for comparative purposes. And he says, here's one like the Son of Man. And notice this also, beloved, that He is dressed in a robe. Dressed in a robe. So we see, first of all, that Christ is in the midst of His lampstands empowering the church, and John looks and he sees that he's dressed in a robe, and what kind of Kind of robe uh, is it it 's an interesting word there it 's found many times in the in, in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, and what 's called the Septuagint. Uh, the Septuagint is a hard word uh, to uh, to grasp. Uh, also called the LXX, how they got that's a different story for a different time. But it's called the Septuagint. It's the it's the Greek uh, version of the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament translated into Greek so that the Greek speaking people could understand the Old Testament language, which is written, of course, in Hebrew and in Aramaic. And so there in the Septuagint, this word is used, and it says that prophets oftentimes wore uh, robes, and so these would be messengers of God. Certainly, Jesus would be the would be a messenger of God. That would be a, a proper use to to wear a robe when they gave their prophecies. It says that they wore robes. Um, judges in those days wore robes. Uh, in fact, some see that what this is, because the book of Revelation is about the right, all things have been entrusted into His Son, and He's going to bring the judgment on the world, that this is not the ornate robes that the high priest would wear. They would see it as the robe of a judge, the one who would be uh, uh, able to give out the judgments upon uh, the earth. The word is used the most times in the Septuagint as the high priest's robe. The high priest's robe would be the robe that the high priest would wear as he entered into the holy of holies. It's always interesting because when you get into dress, when it comes to the church, there are those who see the high priest and how the priest were dressed in the Old Testament. And they were dressed to the nines, if you will, uh, in our language and had all of those things. And, and so a lot of people say that when you come to worship the Lord, that's how you need to come. I find it interesting that once he entered into the Holy of Holies, when he entered in and off that, he took all of those things off and had on a simple cotton uh, dress there in the presence of the Lord. God is not impressed with the ornate things. And there, dressed simply and humbly before the Lord, He made sacrifice on behalf of others. But here he's wearing this this robe. And if it's a high priest robe, then that certainly would remind us that he is our high priest, that he himself made sacrifice on our behalf. He sacrificed himself for us in order that you and I could be brought into the family of God. The role of the high priest, remember, is to not only as we see Christ in the middle of the lampstands to empower, but here he is in the role of the high priest. Um... Uh, uh, interceding on behalf of His people, which is the ministry that Jesus is doing for us now, right? Where is the Lord Jesus now? He is seated at the right hand of the Father, right? Making intercession for us. Praying for us. Praying for His church. Hebrew says that He is our High Priest. And because of His intercession and interceding and bringing us into the family of God, you and I have access through God and access into the throne room of grace that we may receive mercy and obtain grace to help at our point of need. Because Jesus is our High Priest. Notice that his robe is, it has a golden sash wrapped around his, his chest. If you go back in the Old Testament, the high priest's robe, they had that golden sash that was up above their armpits that they would do. But also, if you look, if you would, over in Revelation, uh, Revelation, it says, on more than one occasion. We won't take time to turn there now, but but the angels, before they pour out their judgment, are wearing these robes. And when they're wearing these robes, they have the golden sash upon them as well. And so it seems to be an indication of the judgment, uh, of coming judgment uh, as as well. And so he is dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest, interceding on behalf of his church. What else do we see here? Notice if you would, verse fourteen, the hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, so he is always right what is this? what is this? this isn't like a flat white. Uh, in fact, you can go down just a little bit and you can see that his face was shining like the sun in, in full strength that's his, his representation of his glory, but this whiteness is the purity, and God is always working for. The purity of his church. What did he say? That Christ, right, he loved him, he loved the church, and he gave himself for her that he might what? Present her, right, unblemished and spotless to God. God is always working to purify purify the church. The standard is very high for the Christians in the church. In fact, Peter says it this way, we are to become holy as God is holy. And what God is doing to present us as spotless and unblemished before God is He is making for Himself a holy people. A holy nation, if you will. He is making us a holy people. That's why when you come to Christ, you come as you are. God loves you enough to receive you as you are, but He works on you. He loves you too much to leave you as you are. That's the reason I say if you feel the conviction of sin, it's the goodness of God that brings about that. It's the goodness of God because God is doing His purifying work in your life. And what are the ways He does that? He tells us in Romans 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of the mind. So He gives us His Word to renew our mind, to grow in the grace and knowledge, to grow in holiness and purity. John chapter 15 says that if need be, He will come and He will prune us. He will cut away the sucker branches, if you will. Those that are taking the productivity out of the life of the church and He will cut them away and cast those into, cast those branches into the fire that have no life and are sucking the productivity out of the church. And the Bible says even if He has to, even up to the point of death. Remember Ananias and Sapphira and Acts? God took them out for the sake of purity within the church. This is why I get so concerned with the state of the church today. All this entertainment, all of these games and gimmicks, all of these things that that the church is doing today, um, they're taking time in worship services to do uh dad jokes they have two dads that tell uh, come up and sit across a table and tell bad jokes until the other one laughs and then the competition is over and they do that it's fine to do those things just not in the context in my opinion of a worship service but neither is it acceptable when the people of God are together together as I've seen in places in the past for supposedly believers of God rather than being part of the corporate worship to hang out in the hallway and do their other things instead of coming into the midst. The reason I get so worked up about the ungodliness that I see within the leadership of the church and the things that I see in the church is because it fails to remember to, to recall the fact that God... Is purifying his church. Probably the most indignant I have ever been in the church is when the church allowed those who would not participate in the preaching of the Word of God and in the giving of the tithes and offerings to sit out in the foyer and make their way down to the platform to sing a song. As though that would not be offensive to God. No, beloved. God will not stand for that. And we will see in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, that He will snuff out the light. He will remove the lampstand from that place. Now, how does He know? Well it's clearly, it says right here, his eyes like a fiery flame. His eyes like a fiery flame. So here he is, he's, he's white in all of his holiness and purity from head to toe and coming from his eyes are the laser beams that gives us the picture that he sees into the depths of the church and nothing is hidden from his eyes. Anything that takes place in your life and my life and in a place in the midst of the church is not hidden from God our actions and our attitude, God is fully aware of them. He has the penetrating, fiery eyes that is able to see. In fact, if we look throughout the Bible and other places, even when we as believers stand before Him with all of our supposed works, it is the fiery eyes of God that burns those things up, leaving, uh, burning up the wood, hay, and stubble and leaving the gold, silver, and precious stones Bible speaks of the fiery eyes of God seeing into the depths of our lives and into the depths of the church notice also verse 15 that his feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace what in in the world is that about well, when a criminal in biblical days was convicted of a crime and brought before the judge, the judge always set up higher on a throne, and so he would be at the throne, and the judge would be elevated higher, and so the criminal would be come in and would be brought low, and all he would see well, the first thing he would see as he looked up is, is he would see the the feet. Brass or bronze in the Bible is is always reflective of the judgment. If you go in any time that you see the sacrifice in the Old Testament, uh, particularly the ones for sin, uh, it's about brass and uh, it's about bronze. And so here what we see is we see this picture of the guilty one standing before the judge and looking up and seeing the bronze. Notice that it is it is the white hot, right? It is the purified bronze. It is that that has been in the fire. It's bronze as it is fired in the furnace. And that just reminds us that God is the one who will bring judgment. Peter says this in First Peter 4.17, let judgment begin with the house of God I want to remind you that here revelation begins with Christ in the midst of the church and he's not just the humble shepherd on a donkey he is the king of kings and the lord of lords and he brings judgment both on the church first and also to the world But here He is in the midst of the church purifying His church. His feet are as bronze. And then they would look up and see the throne and see the One seated on the throne. And as they would look through the feet of judgment and on up, clearly a picture. Go back to the book of Daniel as well, chapter 7, chapter 10. And His voice, like the sound of cascading waters as waves of water crashing on the rocks there at the Isle of Patmos. It would be the roar of the waters over Niagara Falls. You'd have the voice of the trumpet piercing, shrilling to bring about the solemn revelation and then the thunderous voice of God would come down You might just want to note in your Bible, Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 2, because there the voice of God is viewed as, as these waters, these cascading waters. The same language is used here in the revelation of the voice of Christ. Again, affirming that Jesus Himself is God. Now, why is that important? Because remember, the Jews who are looking for the Messiah do not believe that the Messiah is God. They believe that He's going to be superhuman. They believe that He's going to be uh, the greatest human who walked on the face of the earth, but He's still going to be human and not God. And over and over and over, we see in the book of Revelation and throughout the Scriptures that Jesus is God. And His voice is the same voice as God that brings about the, the sound of the cascading waters. So that's his appearance. John turns. His back is to him. He hears the voice of a trumpet and he turns and he sees. And this is what he sees in the midst of these lampstands. Notice what it says. What is he doing in these lampstands? Well, he's doing all these things. He's empowering, he's interceding, he's purifying, right? He's 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 doing all these things. He's purifying the church. Um notice notice what it says, uh his eyes of uh of cascading waters. Notice verse sixteen, he had seven stars in his right hand, we'll get to there. A sharp double edged sword came from his mouth. Sharp double edged sword came from his mouth. That means that he has the ability to speak authoritative authoritatively in the church. Hebrews tells us that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. So I want you to get this image of Christ, the glorified, risen Christ. Coming out of his mouth is this double-edged sword, and you know, with that double-edged sword, it's able to lay bare the things that it needs to. In fact, in Hebrews, where it says the word of God is living and active, um, it's almost as if, uh, if you will, uh, this kind of this is the best illustration I know. Many years ago, Eli was uh, playing at a church, at a church that we were attending, and and he fell. And it was one of these square tube chairs that have the plastic caps on there. And the plastic cap was gone. And when he fell, he cut open his lip. And it, it looked like if those of you who are fishing, if you take a fillet knife and a fish, and you just real sharp, you go across it, it just lays it open and lays it bare. Um... That's the picture, if you will, of what the Word of God does. It just lays it open and lays it bare. It accomplishes the work of God because it is living and active and sharpening than a double-edged sword. And it is able to lay us open and bare before God as well as build us up into the people that God would have us to be. And coming from His mouth is this double-edged sword. But ultimately, as we see, his face was shining like the sun at full strength. What did John see? John saw the risen Lord Jesus in His glorified form. it. think about that with me for just a moment if you would this would not be the first time that John would see Jesus in that way. He would get a glimpse of it. Remember Peter, James, and John was able to go up with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and there the flesh was pulled back and the glory of God was revealed. He would see the glory of God on the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and now here in this vision he sees again the risen Lord, the glory of God on His face. Interesting, isn't it? When you think about this, and here's God in the midst of the lampstands, and here He is, and there's so much more we're going to say about that, and we'll come back and say that next week, but what does John see? He doesn't just see the risen Lord in his usual form as though he was dead and now he's alive and we're glad to see him again. He sees him in his glorified form. When he sees him in that glorified form and he sees him as he sees him here, he fell at his feet like a dead man. Well, what about you and I? What will we do when we see the Lord Jesus in all of his glory? Well, will we fall down as a dead man? What do you think? Professor and me want to take a test. Well, the fact is, the scripture tells us that no, we won't. In fact, if you're in Revelation chapter one on my Bible, it's on the same opposite page as the book of Jude, so you shouldn't have to turn. But maybe a single page in your Bible. But but look in Jude, and if you have to say what chapter of Jude you're in, the wrong book because Jude is only one chapter only one chapter 25 verses there's so much here in this uh and so much that we wouldn't know uh otherwise it's it's amazing the things that Jude tells us that, that we wouldn't know uh otherwise um, in fact it's the book of Jude that tells us uh for example uh, in verse nine, yet Michael the Arca- yet Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body. He did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, "The Lord rebuke you." We would not know that Michael wrestled with the devil over the bones of Moses if Jude hadn't told us it deals with false teachers in the church and all of those things. But I want to take you down to the conclusion. I want to take you down to the benediction of the book, if it if it is and. Think about this. John fell down as dead. But notice what it says in Jude verse 24. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling. Look at this. And to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. In other words, he is is able to make us stand in the presence of His glory. Beloved, you and I can't stand in the presence of His glory on our own. We have to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ in order to be able to do so. We've mentioned this many times. I'll just draw your attention to it because now I think that you will see it in a little different light. But you may just want to put in your notes 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 4, No wonder... We see the work of the devil. In their case, the liturgy God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ. What does, what does Satan do? He limits the capacity. He blinds the eyes so they can't see the glory of God at work in the midst of the church. And how does He do that? He brings distractions into our lives. He brings trinkets into our lives. He brings these things in life that detract our attention, that distract us, that draw us away. And in so doing, we think that we are able to multitask or do whatever it is that we want to do and get carried away by these things. But it's a ploy of Satan. To blind our eyes from seeing the glory of God on the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'd ask you this question. What right now in your life is hindering you from? seeing the glory of Christ even in our midst what's gotten your attention what's distracted you what's drawn you away what are you pursuing or chasing after that isn't Christ that's keeping you. It may be good. I'm not saying it's bad things. It may be bad things. It may be sin things. Sin is pleasurable for a season, and we chase after that. It may be sin things, but it may be it may be good things. But, beloved, it's not God. And therefore, it keeps us from seeing the glory of Christ working and moving and stirring in our midst. I can't answer that for you. Do we see Christ? I've never seen the glory of Christ. I've seen evidence of His glory. Seen evidence of us know this. I've never seen a vision like this. One day we will see. But until then, the glory of Christ is all around us. And beloved, we don't want to grieve the Spirit of God. We don't want to diminish the glory of God. We don't want anything in our lives that would detract us and draw us away from experiencing the docks of the glory of God in our midst. And may I simply remind you that Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he was in the presence of the glory of God and was so changed that when he came down the mountain, his life was different. Even his visible appearance was different. In fact, he had to wear a veil. No, he didn't wear a veil to hide the glory of God. He wore the veil because he didn't want the people to see the glory of God fading from His face. What would happen if you and I would be reminded of these truths of the ministry of the glorified Lord in the midst of His church? I think it would be a profound and awesome response. Not only in our collective lives together as a church, but in our individual lives as well. And my prayer for you and my prayer for me today is that we would take time in the presence of God to examine our lives to see what is distracting us, what is drawing us away. What perhaps is keeping us from seeing the glory of God in the midst of His church? And as we get to Revelation 2 and 3, we see the work of Jesus in His church. What work does He need to do in our midst? Does He need to empower us? Certainly He needs to empower us. Does He need to intercede for us? Certainly He needs to intercede for us. Does He need to purify us? Beloved, yes, He needs to purify us. Yes, we need the Word of God to lay us bare. Yes, we need the fiery eyes of Christ to examine our lives so we do not waste our lives. I don't know about you, but I invite the Lord Jesus to do this work not only in my life, but in the midst of this church so when we come back next week we're going to see that in his right hand in this hand of power of his authority are seven angels angelos messengers of God and we're going to see his sovereign control of the church let's pray together heavenly father Thank You for this vision of the risen, glorified Lord. Father, thank You. Thank You for reminding us that Jesus is now at work in the midst of His church. He said He would build His church. He said He would never leave us nor forsake us. He is here in the midst of the church doing the empowering, interceding, purifying, refining work within His church. Father, we are well aware that the church is not a building, but it is a people. So as You do this collectively among us, Your people... Would You do also individually in our lives as well? For only when You work individually in our lives can we come together corporately and be that which You would have us to be. Father, I pray that distractions would be removed. I pray that trinkets and things that flash and glow and draw our attention away in this world would find their rightful place behind the shining glory of Christ. And Father, may we see Him clearly at work in the midst of us, Your people, in Doxa Church. Father, I pray that if there is one who has not repented and believed the Gospel, and Father, that You would overcome the work of the devil who is blinding their eyes and keeping them in that condition, that state of blindness of the glory of God. And Father, may they see the glory of God through the Gospel. And may Lord, may they repent and believe and receive salvation that only Jesus can provide. Father, it's our desire to lead them in the plan of salvation And the path of discipleship and baptismal obedience. And to see disciples mature and multiplied. For Your glory alone. In Jesus' name I pray. God's people said, Amen.